Welcome to ERM Perspectives, the show dedicated to credit union enterprise risk management. If you're interested in hearing perspectives on enterprise risk management directly from the people who do ERM at credit unions, you've got the best seat in the house. I work with credit unions every day so they can have their ideal enterprise risk management program. I'm your host, David Seibert. Let's dive in. Hi, and welcome to this episode of ERM Perspectives. Today, I'm very excited to have Omar Ramsey with me. Omar is the Chief Risk Officer at United States Senate Federal Credit Union in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Omar. Thank you for having me, David. Happy to be here. Well, thank you for taking out the time. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. So to get started, let's learn about you, Omar. Why don't you tell us about your background and what's led up to where you're at today? Sure, absolutely. So I graduated from law school many moons ago, and very, very quickly after summering at a law firm, I realized that uh, I didn't want to do that. (laughs) So I very quickly had to determine what I was going to use my very expensive piece of paper that I just bought for, and I happened to like any good lawyer, research what I could do as alternative careers. And the one that I fell on was actually a compliance officer. So fortunately enough, there was a position that I found in my last year while I was in law school that allowed me to be a compliance officer for a small mortgage dot prep company. And that's sort of how I got my start in financial services, banking, from that mortgage dot prep company, I moved on to Bank United in South Florida. Um, I was at Huntington National Bank. Huntington is where I really started to get into risk management. I made that first shift from being just a compliance SME to covering risk management for their business banking segment. From there, moved on, did more compliance, did more compliance and testing, monitoring at another mortgage company, then ended up in credit union world as a a director of compliance or AVP of compliance, and then was a general counsel for a small startup, and then was, found myself here as the chief risk officer of the credit union. So it's been an interesting journey. I've been at all different size institutes, but I'm very happy I stumbled on risk management as a career. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, I look forward to talking about what it is you like about risk management and how all those things have helped you out. How, how long have you been at the credit union that you're at right now? February, it will be three years. Okay. So I came on board right before the pandemic hit. So oh, I was a very busy person when I jumped on board. Yeah. So you've never experienced normal times there yet. we're just getting there if you will so that must feel good well that's interesting background starting in law i'm fascinated by law i always think i should have maybe been a lawyer so i'll swap my mba with your law degree how about that (laughs) oh no i I, I think i think i'll get i'll get the better hand out of that deal Uh, that that was a very expensive piece of paper david (laughs) yeah yeah there's probably that (laughs) Do you find that that law degree, though, helps you today? I mean, are you happy that you have some of that experience and and background? Oh, absolutely. Of course, I jest. But in terms of the way that law, I think, requires you to think and break things down to the core of what is the problem. Generally, as you would imagine, if we're talking about root cause analysis and things of that nature, the skill set's very, very similar to breaking something down to its core question and then 
analyzing or responding to that particular piece. So it's very helpful in that regard. We deal with a lot of regulations, so it's helped me significantly there. And it also allows me to act, even though it's not in my title, I'm essentially in-house counsel for the credit union as well. So it allows you to sort of wear multiple hats, which otherwise I wouldn't be able to provide to my organization. So it's beneficial, I guess, but, you know, everyone thought I would be at a law firm, but I am not. So, (laughs) well, it makes sense that you can help out the credit union in that general counsel role. So that's, that's, that's nice. But I also like how you broke down, you know, the legal process and how you have to really find root cause analysis and the way you've learn to analyze things, I can definitely see how that carries forward to risk management. So thanks for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit about your ERM program then. So, you know, how long has it been in place? How are you organized and staffed? Anything unique about the program? Sure. So it's, it's been a program that I think has had its stops and starts in the past, not through want of trying or a lack of effort. I think, uh, as a lot of people have previously discussed on the podcast, you know, a, a big piece of this is how much buy-in do you have from, you know, the organization as a whole for what you're trying to build? Because it's very easy for it to be viewed as tacked on. But for the purposes of our program, we really sort of started from scratch when I came on board. So it's been in place pretty much as long as I've been at the organization. So just over three, just under three years. So. Okay. That's good. And do you have staff or are you, is this a one person? Yes. So I I now have a team of seven. Hopefully it'll be eight sometime soon. If anybody's looking, please feel free (laughs) to apply. But I have an excellent team and we have ownership over BSA AML, like many compliance departments do. But then we also do have our operational risks where we're really focused on building that out with a control testing team. We, We also have my VP of risk management, Sue Ruiz, who's amazing. And we really cover a lot. So I definitely think we're punching above our weight. We also use a GRC platform to facilitate a lot of automation for what we do. And that probably is a significant force multiplier for us in terms of allowing us to do so much more than I think otherwise we'd be capable of as a team of seven. Great. Thanks for sharing that. So you mentioned the operational risk area and control testing. How do you partner with internal audit for, for that type of work? Sure. So we, we have a uh, outsource internal audit functions. So we, we utilize a third-party team, but it, it's been a growing conversation as it normally needs to be, where you really have to work on establishing whether you're utilizing three lines of defense or you're utilizing some other format or function, you really need to make sure the roles and responsibilities are very clear. Yeah. So for us with the control testing team, as we're ramping that up from our documentation efforts, one of the key things that we've done is this is the middle ground. So our reports are not going to be nearly as formal as internal audit. When we do a sample, it's going to be very targeted to specific controls. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be testing a specific control, not necessarily a overarching area, if you will. Yeah. 
So we've really tried to differentiate that in terms of how we're going to look at things versus internal audit where they do take that broader scope. They do tend to look at, at least in terms of the way that we're structured, either a business unit as a whole or a whole regulation, if you will. So ours is meant to be very targeted and it allows us to be much more fluid than internal audit would be. That makes a lot of sense. That's, that's good to hear that you're partnering in that way. Yeah. Now you also mentioned GRC platform. You want to tell us a little bit about that, what it does for you, what it automates, even what the platform sure. is and, and tell us about sure. that. Yeah. It's no secret. I'm a big fan of the Archer GRC tool. Uh, I've used them at uh, three different institutions that I've worked at at this point in time. Very flexible tool. Essentially, if you can think it, you can imagine it and you have a little bit of technical nuance you can actually adjust this tool to do what you want. We currently utilize it to automate a lot of things from vendor management in terms of expiration of documentation, um, issue management. A lot of that is automated with our, 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 our staff where reminder notices go out every month for outstanding issues. That's automated. We get, they have to put in comments or else it politely nudges them every single day until they do. So you get that squeaky wheel functionality, if you will, without you putting your staff being the ones who need to constantly draft emails, reach out, look it up. So it really leverages that quite a bit. So a lot of that, once we get it in the system, is very, very streamlined and automated. Uh, and then vendor management, it's, it's great. And then we're also working on automating our business continuity, business impact analyses functions. We did that separately as an Excel sheet, but we really have plans to put that in the system. But the one thing that we're waiting on is like a lot of things, the moment you get in the system, you want to keep it updated, but we need more people to do that. So that, that, that additional person will be one of the people who will be able to assist us with that. Oh, good. That makes sense. That, that ties that together. Now with an Archer system like that, I know IT information security departments like to use Archer as well. Are they going to loop into Archer or do they see a need? No, right now they're, they're using a separate platform. They generally use for a lot of their, their tracking. I think I want to say it's Jira for a lot of their tracking, but that's very typical. Jira is a very popular tool with IT departments around the, the globe. But from an issue tracking perspective, they may manage some of their stuff in Jira, but it still rolls up to what we're doing in Archer so that we have a global view. Archer also allows us to house our risk register. So that's been a big project for ours, us this year, documenting a risk register. We're starting off with somewhere around 246 or 260, somewhere around there in that range of initial risks that we're going to be documenting controls against. And we're just in the process of finishing up our control documentation exercises. And all of this will be housed within Archer okay. with the idea that we'll be able to automate control tests in the future as well. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I was going to ask you about the number of risks that you're capturing. And, and so you've already shared that with us about 260. And that's a number of risks that as an enterprise risk management program, focusing on just key risks and being manual, you wouldn't be able to manage that many risks. So now you're able to go deeper into the organization. 
Is that Correct. how you see that? Okay. 100%. We, we have a focus on cybersecurity, as do many financial institutions, but particularly because of who we are and the members we serve. It's definitely something where we have a very low appetite. As a result, I think it's just under half of those risks are coming from NIST cybersecurity guidelines. Yeah. So you'll see that we're getting really granular from a cybersecurity perspective and staying somewhat higher level with other categories. That makes sense. So you touched on something interesting there, and that is the members of your credit union. So that would be senators, senator staff. How do you define your, your membership? That, 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 that's, that's correct in part. We, we also have, as said, the Capitol Police. We have the ar- architect of the Capitol. We have several different organizations that are down there in terms of the Capitol infrastructure. but generally a lot of the organizations surrounding. Okay. Thank you. That's an interesting, interesting little tidbit. I thought it would be nice to talk about. So you've talked a lot about some of the cool things you're doing. Is there anything in particular that you're strong at that you want to cover or did we already cover that? No, I I think I could go in a little bit more detail with what we're doing from an issue management perspective, because I definitely think that's where we've received quite a bit of kudos from the organization as well as our regulator uh, regarding the way that we're managing our our issues. Archer really allows us to have a very visible workflow for us to track it. And I think, again, the, the comment that I made in terms of every month we're getting updates on what exactly has happened with the action plans that we put in place for closing out these issues it allows you to really have a pulse of what's going on, whether or not, okay, I'm not seeing the kind of progress that I think that we should be seeing here. Let me go have a conversation. That allows you to stay in front of issues or outstanding items in a much more proactive way than getting all the way to, let's say, the next exam. And then you're asking everybody, hey, where were you on this? And then you find out that you're not where you're supposed to be. It's allowed me to proactively bring up, hey, you know, this area might need more resources. This area might need more help because I can see based on tracking that the number of issues are going up and they're having trouble closing these out. So I think that's more of a capacity issue versus a lack of desire to close it out. And as a result, because at the core, that's what we're supposed to do is risk management. We're supposed to facilitate and make it easier for the allocation of resources. That's a way for us to have that conversation. So, yeah, I like that tie in about the allocation of resources. Yeah, managing risk, making the right decisions, and allocating resources. Yeah, that's a good tie in there. So, back to issue management itself, I really like how you've, how the system does help you manage those like risk decisions, right? You, you do a risk assessment, you have a decision, maybe it's mitigate. So now you're tracking the progress on that plan. Now, do you have a risk management committee that you share this information with? Do you have a committee that helps you kind of keep things on track or is there no risk management committee at the credit? So the, the committee's in progress right now. So formally getting launched fourth quarter, we wanted to get to a point where we had the register and control documentation set up first. But my primary point of contact has been the supervisory committee in terms of speaking through any risks that I'm seeing with the organization, as well as having the direct to the CEO as well. 
So it comes up in our one-on-one conversations. So okay. there have been a lot of different ways to speak about it. And then we have a general SMT meeting, but I do want to get into the granular and particulars of risk management, noting what we're seeing, noting what we're doing from a performance perspective, and then particularly having those risk and controls. We spent a lot of time and resources to document them. So you really want to have those front and center. Yeah. Well, that's good. You've, you've got a lot of avenues of reporting with the supervisory committee, CEO coming up with a risk committee in the fourth quarter. So mm-hmm. that's good. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. That's a really nice strength to have that issue management. So on the flip side, there's some things about enterprise risk management that are really difficult to build. So what do you think is one of the hardest things you've had to deal with when you've built your ERM program and how did you deal with that? I think one of the most difficult things that you, you have to work on when you're building out the program is really being able to size it for the organization that you're at. You know, there are institutions like any, anybody, you could get as granular as you want with as much staff as you want. And there's still a lot to do, whereas we're of a, you know, we're just over a billion in assets. So we have to make sure that we're setting the expectation of what we can facilitate. And sometimes that can be hard to do. But one of the things that I think is very beneficial is finding a maturity model that you can map your program against and really set the expectation for the organization. What I've done in the past is you sort of use the a maturity model as a menu, if you will. So you show the functionality that each of the maturity models essentially enable. Oftentimes they come with an explanation of what it means to be at this maturity model from a vendor management perspective, from an operational risk perspective, resiliency. They go through all the different categories. And then by setting that, it gives you very, very, tangible targets for where you want the program to become or where you want the program to be. And then the other added benefit is that if at any point you're getting requests to go beyond that maturity level, you have what I view as a very built-in justification for you to obtain additional resources to facilitate that. Because then you could say, look, you guys gave me resources for me to be at, let's say a level three, If you want me to go to a level four or five, that means I'm going to need more resources Mm. because obviously the more mature, the more sophisticated the program becomes, the more resources you need to allocate to be able to reach that. Mm. And it really takes, I think, a lot of the weight off that conversation when you're trying to build that initial buy-in because then you're you're, you're really giving the, the decision to the decision makers, the board your senior management team, and it's normally a combination of the two, and saying, which of these works for you? Mm. And then once you have your marching orders, you have a very specific target to go towards. And it takes away some of the, uh, sometimes it could be very esoteric what we do in terms of risk management. It's hard to say we've reached somewhere because it is a journey and it's always ongoing. But If you're having those conversations, you can say, we've reached our maturity level three, but we're still going through the ongoing conversations associated with that. That will give you that ability to say, we've we've met our target from a maturity perspective, but we still have the ongoing activities that we're working on. It just takes some pressure off. Yeah. 
I like that. Thank you for explaining that so well, Omar. I really like that. One of the things I like to do with my credit union clients is to help them build a multi-year roadmap. And that's always mapped against a maturity model. And I really like how you've explained that. So um, yeah, I really appreciate that. No, 100%. You, have you built your own maturity model or is it a hybrid or do you have a particular one you like, like RIMS or from yes. James Lamb or what, what do you like? So we utilize RIMS. I've utilized it a couple of times now. Very clean. I, I particularly like the way that they break it down into the subcategories. So I want to say it's eight sub-disciplines or it might be more than that, but I want to say it's sub-disciplines where they, they break it down into like operational risk, resiliency, so on and so forth that make it really, really easy to plan out your full program as a whole. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things that I do but I do this to sort of enhance what they've done within RIMS is you work through each sentence within each subcategory, and then you really plan your projects around, okay, which project answers which of these five or seven sentences that requires us to get to level three. Yeah. So it really allows you to do that tie back to the projects you're doing, the initiatives you're doing, and then that allows the visibility for the board, senior management, everybody to see, okay, when I say we're doing a risk register, that's what's helping us answer, you know, bullet five, six, seven, two, five in this category, so on and so forth. And then you put the whole pie together and then you see that will get us to RIMS maturity level three, yeah. let's say. So. Yeah. I like that. I like that. So RIMS just updated their RIMS maturity model. Was it this year or was it last year? I think it was a fairly recent new um, release. I am not familiar with the updates, so I couldn't okay. tell you. We're still probably operating off the old model because I did okay. use that to begin. But if there was an update, I have to go take a look and maybe go back and update that. I think there might have been an update announced this year, probably earlier this year. I might be okay. checking out. And I... I I, just for the listeners to know, there is a membership requirement to access the RIMS maturity model. So I think you need yes. to be a RIMS member or you pay a non-member price. Uh, so I just, I just don't want people to think they can go out and just download it, but uh, I'm sure it's affordable. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's, that's no, nice. 100%. Yeah. Nice to hear how that maturity model helps you, you know, build your program, but also communicate to your governing bodies about where we're at and what the expectations are. That makes sense. Well, is there anything that we didn't cover about you or the credit union or the ERM program that you'd like to share? Any last? One thing that I would say is, as we, we always say, it's always about the team, the team you have. I have an amazing team that really allows us to punch above our weight. As much as I can, you know, talk about the, the benefits of Archer as an automated tool that really facilitates a lot of what we do as an operational function. I couldn't do it without my team. And I have a great, great team in terms of them being willing to buy in. A lot of work with helping them understand just how they're helping us achieve our goals. One of the big, big things that they, they, they really got on board with was, you know, the, the regulators view a strong program in such a positive light. It really does allow you to take on more risks because, Again, they have that comfort that you're mitigating it at the same time. And if you can explain that, if you could show that, you could show the, you know, it means a lot. And just sharing that tidbit with my team, I feel like 
they've been great with executing the program, really digging in, trying to understand control testing, trying to make sure you know, the information we're getting is really, really of a high quality. So I couldn't do this without any of them. And I'm very, very happy I have them. Uh, but other than that, David, I, I don't think I have anything else to add, but this has been a great conversation. Yeah, well, that's, I'm so happy for you to have a wonderful team. So congratulations. I can sense that from you, that the team's really working and gelling well. And, and so congratulations. That's good. Is there any advice you want to share with listeners about how to like start an ERM program? or what it takes to keep it going or something they should focus on? Just any little piece of advice? I may sound a little bit like a broken record here in terms of, I think, some of the other listeners, but buy-in is essential. You know, when you're starting the program, I think the buy-in and the type of buy-in that you get from the board as well as senior management is critical. If they're not on board with whatever type of program that you're looking to build, you'll face an uphill battle where they don't understand what the benefits are. And that is a very hard place to build a program from. Yeah. So just always make sure that you have that level set. Again, I just want to reiterate maturity models are an excellent way of doing that, but make sure you have that buy-in from them in terms of where exactly they want, you know, lots of things that, you know, you could go through, But the big piece that I think is always the aspirational target is getting to that risk quantification as an organization where you're really talking in dollars and cents to the organization. And if anything, you're talking with data points. So it's a very qualitative, a quantitative assessment versus a qualitative assessment, because it also makes more sense to the business, right? So it's, Just try and make it so that everything you're speaking of feels like it's a part of what the business is doing Mm -hmm. rather than an added on activity. That goes a long way to them feeling like, okay, we're talking in a way I understand. This is something that I I get. You know, you're you're talking a number of applications versus what is, and this is a personal preference of mine, uh, versus something that is somewhat abstract that what is the likelihood of something occurring? I feel like the moment you ask the business, what is the likelihood of something occurring? The first thing you always get, I have yet to not get a very quizzical look on someone's face when it's like, what do you mean by the likelihood of something occurring? Well, if you didn't have controls, but I do have controls in place. What are you talking about? I don't get it. The, the conversation literally goes the exact same way every single time sure. you have it. So as much as you can ground your program in terms that make sense to the business and you have that buy-in from the top, then those are the, the real foundational building blocks, I feel, to a successful ERM program. Those are some, that's some great advice, Omar. Now you've touched on some interesting things. So if you don't mind, I'd like to dig into a few of those. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. So buy-in from the top, obviously that's very helpful. So I'm curious with you, were you able to inherit buy-in from the top when you came to the credit union or did you have to build that yourself and and use your maturity models to do that? Or was it a combination of both of those? So I would say it was a combination, but I probably lean towards the, the latter or the former, I should say, in that I think there was an awareness that there was a need for someone in my role. If you look at other credit unions that are of our size and asset size, I think 
it's actually somewhat unique that they, they decided that they were going to bring on board a chief risk officer. Normally, I think you're seeing that role at asset size that are double that generally. So I think that was the first indication that they're very serious about risk being at the table and really having a voice. But at the same time, it's also, okay, what exactly does that mean for the organization? You know, are you thinking of this as a compliance role or are you really thinking of this in a, my goal is to make sure we're managing risk for the entire organization and we have an understanding of that? Because sometimes it can sort of, fall into this very compliance related, you know, they think of risk and they're just like, oh, you're the compliance guy. And I'm like, no, I'm not just the compliance guy. Yeah. I'm thinking about everything. I'm trying to think about everything. I want to understand risk for the entire organization. So that was definitely a little bit of a conversation to give awareness around that. But that's where I leverage, again, the maturity models, as you indicated, white papers, where they're available. In particular, I use the IIA, the Institute of Internal Auditors, three lines of defense model, white paper. There's a significant amount of that that essentially is just in our ERM policy. We just restate. It does roles and responsibilities. It does a breakout of who does what, who owns the program, you know, where does that program report up to, the responsibilities. So it does a lot of that lifting for the policy perspective. The only thing that you still really have to think about is how exactly you're going to measure your risk as an organization. And as I indicated previously, we're really trying to jump straight into a quantitative model just because I think it grounds what we're doing so that the business understands it. Hmm. Thanks again for mentioning the three lines model. I think that's a good plug for the IIA. It's a good model to follow. So thanks for sharing that for our listeners. And then you did go right into quantification, which was the second area I wanted to talk about. I know Archer has some abilities to do Monte Carlo simulation and that sort of thing. Is that what you mean when you say quantification and are you going in that direction? So Monte Carlo simulations, you'll, you'll see me smile because that's a aspirational goal of mine. But again, we're, we're a team of seven and I say that not just for myself, but I also say it for my VP, her and I, we joke all the time that, you know, we know exactly where we want to go, but it's patience, right? Like we're only a team of seven. We're coming from larger organizations where we've seen this work before and seen the infrastructure and all that built out. So it's always putting that dose of, we are a team of seven. So it's almost like a little mantra right now. We got to size what we're doing appropriately and accordingly. That makes sense. But our goal in the future will be to get to Monte Carlo simulations. But right now we're doing a very, very basic analysis from a quantification perspective where we've selected for our risk register items, and we're only going to be analyzing the risk at a very high level for the organization as a whole is we pick a particular key risk indicator or key performance indicator that would essentially size, okay, how much this would go. And then the the example I like to use is let's say reg B, right? So let's say the risk that we violate reg B is one of the risks that we're looking at as an organization. We then say, what increases your exposure to something like reg B? 
Now, Reg B, the increase in exposure is essentially the number of applications that you take. The more applications you take, the more your Reg B risk goes up. So what am I going to use as my likelihood measure? It will be the number of applications that we have inherently. So that's how I get my inherent risk measure. It's that number of applications times the maximum penalty that we potentially would be able to see if you hit violate Reg B. And that's our impact measure. So that's how you get to inherent risk. Now, from a residual risk metric perspective, that's where the control testing team would come into play. And we would test a sample. In this case, we'd probably test a sample of like 25 or so. And then the control effectiveness based on the sample that we've taken, that becomes our residual risk measure for that particular item. Mm. And now some of these, again, we're not going to be able to test all 264, again, we're a team of seven, but the idea is that for those that we know we haven't had an impact for, we do sort of a substitute in the interim until we actually get control testing data. So we say, okay, because we have this number of controls in place and we haven't had an incident, then that gets a default uh, residual risk measure of X. So it allows us to have both the inherent and residual in terms that I think the business really understands. They can go along with because they say, okay, my application volume goes up and down. I track that myself, right? That's a metric that's very typical for them to track. So it's not like they're thinking of some number that's abstract to what they're already doing. It's embedded in their business. Does that result potentially into some overstatements of risk? Absolutely. But what we're doing is pseudoscience anyways. And what we're trying to do is triage, right, at the end of the day. And if we're measuring things in that very similar manner across the entire program, you're still going to get the benefit of the triage where you're going to be able to help the businesses make better decisions. So, But you get the benefit where they understand it at the same time. So that's sort of the way that we're going to be analyzing risks throughout the organization. That's really a powerful example, Omar. So thank you for walking us through the Reg B example. I like how you're able to use real world empirical data. That's much less of an abstraction from reality than, you know, typical risk assessments where everything's a complete abstraction from reality. It's just like, what's the likelihood, you know, two times might happen twice in a year or twice every 10 years. So that's a really good example. So I definitely share your kind of long-term goal of getting to Monte Carlo. I do talk to a lot of credit unions about it, but it's just, we're just not ready as an industry, but I'm ready when everybody else is ready too. (laughs) Because there's so much great information you'll be able to get from it. And, you know, it's that proactive nature where you're really looking at scenarios and really trying to be proactive and be in front of the, the game, if you will. Everything right now that we, we tend to do really, and, and it's just through the nature of resources, and I think of that, it tends to be very reactive, where a lot of times you're, you're trying to put in place all of these proactive measures, but at the same time, you're fighting fires. And that's just the nature of what happens. So, Yeah, yeah. very good point. Very good point. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation with you, Omar. I really appreciate it. If someone wants to get in touch with you and just ask you some questions about what you talked about today, how can they get in touch with you? 
Sure. One, I'm a member of the Maryland, D.C. Ram Council. So that's an open roundtable for credit unions in Maryland, D.C. area. I'd encourage anybody who's in the area to join that. And I'm also available on LinkedIn. So generally, I, I will accept with ERM partitioners or practitioners and be happy to connect. And I, I'm normally pretty responsive on LinkedIn. So Great. That's two great ways to get in touch with you. Thanks for sharing that. Well, this has been very informative. I really appreciate you, appreciate you taking the time uh, to share all this with the listeners. And uh, I look forward to keeping in touch with you and, and maybe getting an update uh, down the road sometime. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds great. Absolutely, David. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, to the listeners, thanks for listening to this episode of Ear and Perspectives. And we'll talk to you again next time. Bye for now. That's all for today's Ear and Perspectives. If you enjoyed the show and heard something useful, Please do your friends and colleagues a favor and share this podcast with them. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. Please contact me if you'd like to be a guest on this show or if I can help you or someone you know. I'm David Seibert, and you can find me on LinkedIn or at my website, davidseibertconsulting.com.